If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them to the Gospel of Luke. If you've had a sneak peek at your bulletin, you know that we're in Luke 15 this morning. And perhaps looking or thinking through Luke chapter 15, you know it's the gospel that is most, has the most parables in it. You remember, or either you're turning there now and you see that in Luke 15, we get the three parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. Of course, very familiar to us, these types of stories, a story uh, specifically the prodigal son that we're going to be looking at this morning, one of, again, those iconic passages that we've been talking about the last few communion Sundays where it's so familiar to us that so often we lose sight of really the beauty, truth, and richness of why these passages became iconic in the first place, why they, why they became so commonplace. And, and we, we have heard, you probably have heard many profound messages and teaching, especially on the 23rd Psalm or, or Matthew 11, or in this particular case, Luke chapter 15. And as I've said previously on, on previous Sundays, it's so easy then to look past these types of passages as if, well, I, I know that one, I got it. I really do have the message there. And perhaps you do. Perhaps we all have the sense of these passages. But isn't it great every so often to come back around to these to be reminded why did they become iconic in the first place? What about it made it one of those passages, and whether it's the Old or New Testament, that compels us to look at this and say, wow, this is profound, this is rich, this has much meaning, and yet even as much as we may or may not know about it, the Word of God has something to say to us this morning regarding this particular passage of Scripture. And so that's where we find ourselves. As I told you, this chapter 15, the prodigal son, is, is in a string of parables where Jesus is talking about the shepherd leaving the 99 sheep and going to find the one who is lost and the rejoicing when that sheep is found, or, or the woman who loses the coin and searches her house high and low until she finds that coin, and there is rejoicing over what was lost having been found. And then, of course, we get much the, the, the most detailed story with the prodigal son, and we're reminded yet again the joy of one sinner being restored or one lost person being found, that one soul who was dead being made alive. And so I can think of no better passage of Scripture to meditate on for a few moments before we partake in the Lord's Supper together, before we remember the death of Christ and how death was conquered in the death of Christ and within the death of Christ, we who were lost have been found. We who were dead have been made alive. And I think that this story this morning gets to the very heart of that truth. So without further delay, let us turn our attention now to the parable itself. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, 
a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went, and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, "'How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, "'Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants.' And he arose and came to his father." While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead. He is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he, that is his father, said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother, for this your brother, was dead and is is alive. He was lost and is found. So, in the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, familiar story before us, rich with meaning, rich with truth, rich with hope, rich with life rich with love, rich with grace, all the things which we need this very, time, this very moment. Fill us, I pray, with your Spirit to receive from you in these next few moments, to be transformed by the power of your Word. It is through Christ we pray. Amen. When we think about this parable, of course, there are so many things you can look at from here, so many different angles which you could come at this and the ways in which Uh, we understand it, how we interpret this, or how we understand it, how we apply it to our own lives. It's actually really interesting, the the way that it's laid out uh, versus, um, if you look at verses 11 through 16, it kind of sets the context for the story, and then verses 17 to 24 give us the resolution, and then uh, verses 25 to 32 actually reintroduce a conflict back into the story. It's kind of interesting the way Jesus tells it, because normally what you'd expect is context, conflict, resolution. Well, what it does is it gives us the context, then gives us what is the resolution to the story, and then comes back and reintroduces one more conflict, almost as if Jesus understood, and hear the sarcasm in there, 
Almost as if Jesus understood that even after resolution, that the Father of glory is still having to go out to His children to remind them who they are, what belongs to them, what position they hold. And so when you read the parable of the prodigal son, we could call it the parable of the prodigal sons. That would make sense. We could call it the parable, as some commentators do, the parable of the loving father, which to me makes the most sense. Because what we're looking at here, it's so easy to focus on the son who goes off and lives recklessly. That's not the focus of this story. That's a detail. The focus of the story is the father how the father interacts with the reckless son and the legalist son, how the father interacts with both of them in their time of need, and the truth he speaks to both of them in the very moment when they need to hear truth. Jesus definitely had his crowd in mind as he's telling the story, and the focal point, the focal point is not of the one who lived on the one who lived recklessly, it's the one who was blinded by his own sense of what he thought he was worth and how he thought he was valued. And so we're looking at how the Father is in each context able to bring an arrow of truth that pierces right to the heart of the matter. And so when we think about this, if we take this parable as a teaching on our Father in heaven, the heart of Christ, the heart of Yahweh for His people, The primary idea that we walk away from the story with gaining is that God's pursuit is more powerful than our sin. That God's pursuit of His people is more powerful than our sin. James will get at that a little bit when he talks about God's grace is more powerful than our sin. God's pursuit of us is more powerful than our sin. So do you ever find yourself in sin patterns, and sometimes you just give in, you give in, you give in, you give in, but then you have those moments of victory. You have those moments where you say, no, I'm not going to give in. I'm going to walk in uprightness. I'm going to walk in holiness. I'm going to walk in truth. Well, the reason that happens for us as believers is A, We have the Word of God guiding us in all truth. B, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who also guides us in truth. And C, we've been pursued by Yahweh to the point that we come to a place where His pursuit is overpowering our own pursuit of sin. And so when we find that we are not finding victory in those places, it's not because Christ has stopped pursuing us. It's because like the prodigal son, like the older brother, like Jonah, we've chosen to retreat in spaces where we think we're going to hide and find something that we cannot find there. And so Jesus tells this parable not so much to highlight the sin of one who lives recklessly, although he does, but to remind us that wherever sense of, I'm going to use the word lostness here, whatever sense of lostness we experience, there is something profoundly more powerful than that lostness, and it's the love of God. The very love that we see on display before us today in just a, in a little while when you come and you receive your cup and you receive your, your morsel of bread, you are actively remembering and partaking in the very pursuit that gave all so that we could be alive and found. And if you live long enough, and you walk with Christ long enough, you can look at the prodigal and the older brother and see yourself in both of them.
I have lived long enough. You know my testimony. I was the prodigal. And I've also lived long enough and walked with Christ long enough to find myself sometimes as the older brother. Instead of rejoicing in the grace of God or, or remembering how rich the grace of God was, I can find myself sometimes thinking, why can't you just get it together? And God have mercy on me and us because it's easy for us to fall into those traps and categories. Well, when we think about this story, uh, the overarching theme, I've told you God's pursuit is more powerful than our sin. That's the primary point. What is the overarching theme in that? What is the main character? So if that is the storyline, God's pursuit is more powerful than our sin, what, what is the main character in that storyline? This little phrase called effectual grace. Brad, what do you mean by effectual grace? That is a grace that comes from God that is effective and powerful to achieve its purpose. So effectual grace is a grace that comes from God that is effective and powerful to achieve its purpose. That's exactly what the prodigal son, this parable, is driving at. So when we think about, you've heard me say this before, we sing it every Christmas, when we think about the salvation of Christ, when we think about the love of the Father, they truly can, those things, the salvation of Christ, the love of the Father, it really does go as far as the curse is found. There is no obstacle that stops it. There is no, there is no wall that keeps it out. There are no chains that bind the love of God expressed in salvation, it goes as far as the curse is found. Why can you have victory this morning? Why? Because the love of God goes as far as the curse is found. Why can you walk in freedom this morning and not be bound by shame and guilt and even overburden with regret? Because the love of God and His salvation go as far as the curse is found. One of the fancy phrases you learn when you're getting theological education is called the noetic effect of sin. What does that mean? It's just a fancy way of talking about the full effects of sin on the mind, on the heart, that really does affect us in our whole person. And because of the noetic effect of sin, okay, the effect of sins on everything, this is good news. The prodigal son, that parable is good news because it does remind of the pursuit of the Father that does not relent, that does not give up. As I told you, we're looking at things a little crossways. We're looking at context resolution and then coming back around to a conflict. So the context that's set out in verses 11 through 16, we, we read it just a moment ago. We already told, we're told there's a man, he had two sons, an older and a younger son. The younger son comes to the man and he demands his inheritance early. Well, one of the things that the context is doing, he's talking about a certain type of death that is rampant in humanity. The idea of license and debauchery. We live in a world, in a culture, where the, the parable of the prodigal son should ring a note of truth with us. We can look around us and see a culture that thinks that license and debauchery are equated with freedom. Well, I'm free because I can do what I want, when I want, with whomever I want. Well, as Christians who are rooted in Scripture, we understand that is death. And that's one of the primary points of this parable early on, is that it, it, it reminds us that the son thought, I'm going to get my inheritance and go live it up, but in so doing, I'm, I'm placing myself on the altar of culture to die. There is no hope 
There is no joy. There is no fulfillment or satisfaction in this lifestyle because it's leading this young man to his death. That's exactly what we see here. He comes to his father, give me the share of the, of the property. That word property there is interesting. The Greek word bios. So it's where our word for biology comes from, the study of life. In this particular context, bios or property is indicative of or referencing the father's livelihood, <laughs> everything he's worked for. So imagine this young man, his father has worked hard his whole life. He's, he's built a nice life for his family. He's done well. He's been wise. And this young man comes demanding everything that you've worked for, all your living, I want my share of what you're going to give me. Now, you've probably heard it stated before. There is an issue here. The father is not dead. The son is asking for his inheritance early, which was not unheard of in the ancient world. But to come and demand it the way he does is surely a sign of disrespect, of selfishness, and a lack of love. Why? Because this loving figure who had been faithful his whole life, this young man doesn't see him as a source of security, an anchor, or even any, in, any, in any meaningful way, a source of hope and joy in his life. All he sees is an opportunity to go and live it up. So in some sense, basically, Pop, you're going to die eventually. I like what's coming to me now so that I can enjoy it now. And let that sink in. Because what, what are we looking at, beloved? We're looking at exactly what sin does to our psyche, our thinking, our way of life. What you see is a rejection of respect, and in sense, you see a rejection of love. This young man forfeited any sense of love and respect for his father because his father now becomes an object, something to be used to get what I want. What does he want? We don't know. We know that he goes off to a far country and spends it all, partying, having a good time, of, of hoping that that type of hedonistic lifestyle will give him some sort of happiness and pleasure, but it doesn't. It only lasts insofar as the riches last. And that's exactly what sin will always do to us. Sin leads us to forfeit love and respect in our pursuit to get that thing we think we want. But you've lived long enough. You have right now, all of us in this room. We've lived long enough to know that we think, well, human beings can think that, and when we get our hands around it and we have it, we begin to realize this is not it. This is not it. This hasn't given me that thing I thought that it would. The son doesn't see that yet. So within those first few verses, we see he takes the father's property. He had to liquidate it in some sense. He had to turn his inheritance into cash because it would have been cattle. It would have been, you know, sheep or, or ox or, or land or, or some sort of agricultural commodity that needed to be liquidated and turned into money. So again, he takes what his father has worked for. He liquidates he turns it into money, and he goes to this far country, which is not named because it doesn't matter, and we're told that he squandered his money. There he squandered his property in reckless living. And it, interestingly enough, it doesn't lay out exactly what this reckless living is. It just tells us that he does it. His older brother, we, you heard, and we'll see here in just a little bit, 
had an idea of what this reckless living entailed. But here we're just simply told he squandered it, he went broke in reckless living. When he spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. Again, what is the application? If sin always leads us to forfeit love and respect for people, what else does sin do? Sin takes. Sin is a taker. It is not a giver. Now, people will indulge it, Christians as well as anybody, will indulge it thinking that they're going to get something out of it, and then they don't. What sin does is it takes. Now, it flashes a mirage, you know. It flashes this this reflection of, you see it in the reflection of sin, we see that desire that's there, and we think we can reach out and take it, but it's a mirage, you see. Sin flashes what we think we want and then takes. It gives nothing, and yet how many times, how many times do we fall for those lies? We do, again and again. The prodigal son falls for a common lie. That if I go and indulge this sin, I'm going to get something. But all he finds out all too quickly that he began to be in need. The money, the parties, the reckless living, all the other amenities that he was privy to left him in need. And so he's reduced. He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. Now, we, I don't have to spend a lot of time talking about the degradation of this. This Jewish young man who's grown up seeing uh, swine pigs as unclean has now reduced himself to slop food for these unclean animals, the very representation of defilement. And not only is he now in contact with these animals who defile, who are defiled, who are dirty, who keep one separated from God ceremonially, but he's longing for the food that they eat. Now, can you imagine this young man of means who's been having a consummate party is now looking at pig slop with hunger gnawing at him, saying the pods from a particular tree in that region that they use to slop pigs looks good to him. What we're looking at is the natural disposition of one who separates himself from the Lord. When we take that route, there may be a party, there may be a season of fun, and we may have friends on the front end, but the end of that is death. Ask anyone who's ever walked down the pathway of sin, ask them if they're willing to be honest with you What lie at the end of that road? Death. Always death. And this young man found this out. So we're given the context. The scene is set. The story is set. We're seeing a young man who had love, who had acceptance, who had a family, who's now abandoned all that for something he thought would give him some sort of purpose, some sort of joy, some sort of hope and life. And he comes to the end, and what is there? There's nothing. So then we get to resolution. We should read verse 17 with a deep sense of joy. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, and I perish here with hunger? 
I will arise, I will go to my father, I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So what do we have here? What is the resolution of this? We get it right here. We already get what is the resolution of the story. This young man's recognition that the father's love is drawing me back in, that this father who loves and who's generous I can go back to him. Now, I want you to think about here, if we can just break away from this story for a second, and let me speak to us who are parents in this moment. If we take a gander or just a thought at what's happening here, what has this father fostered in his son? Not do everything right, not never make any mistakes, not don't be a boy, but son, you have one who loves you. And even in your most desperate times, What can you do? You can come back to your father. Parents, I haven't done this. Our our folks, those of you who are parents, I haven't done this perfectly. I'm preaching to myself this morning. But you know what this parable makes me think about? What would it look like if as parents we sought to capture those hearts rather than nitpick about every little thing so that as our children get older, maybe everything wasn't perfect and everything is not perfect in my house. But they leave our houses with a sense of, my father, my mother, they love me. In my most desperate hour, I know who I can turn to. Those who will speak to my heart and not written simply just this moment. I'm praying, and because this convicts me to the core of my being as a dad, I'm praying that that is my heart as my children grow up and leave my home. And perhaps you can be praying that way, especially you who have smaller children who are on the front, the beginning of your journey. You're going to mess up big. You're going to make tons of mistakes. Your kids are not perfect, and they won't ever be. In fact, though you don't know it right now, it took me a long time to figure out our kids annoy other people. (laughs) And there is no remedy for that. They're going to annoy other people. And if the worst thing they do in life is annoy our neighbors, then God be praised. We can't avoid that, but you know what we can avoid? We can't avoid turning them out and making them think in their most desperate hour, I can't go home because of my shame. Never let shame be the barrier that keeps our children from us. Labor to say there is no amount of shame that's going to keep you from me. And I'm saying this with all sincerity. I don't care if my child killed somebody. I care that a life was taken. I would still want there to be no barrier for them to come to their father. And I pray that I do that more and more. Anyway, back to this parable. He came to himself in a far country and he said, golly, my father's servants live better than this. What a, whoa, I'm going to go home. I'm going to recognize what sin has done. I'm going to see sin for what it is. Sin has robbed me of my identity, and I'm willing to lay it on the altar before my dad and say, Dad, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Look at what I've done. But I know you're loving. I know you're generous. I know you're gracious. I'll return to you. Beloved, we're reading what, what repentance looks like. A humbling of the self, a recognition that you have what I need, and a willingness to come to you head bowed, hat in hand, and say, I failed, but you have the hope. You have the help. You have that, you offer that sense of belonging 
that I need. So the son is saying, hey, accept me in a lesser manner. Just accept me. I don't even have to be your son. If I can live in your house, just let me live there. He's motivated by need, but he's also motivated by an understanding of who the father is. Well, what I would argue from here, he has a proper view of sin. He has an actual proper view of what sin really does do. Sin does rob us of our humanity. It does, it does kind of uh, mar our identity. The, the image of God is imprinted on us, and that can never be taken. But sin can cause it to be blurred, cause it to look somewhat shattered, cause it to look somewhat askew. And this son at least recognizes this. He sees what sin does. But I, we, we can't get away from the fact, but he also sees who his father is. And he's not afraid to, in spite of his sin, come back to his father. What I love here, he says, verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. So he dissolved, or he resolved in his mind, and then he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What a powerful reality here. The father, was he waiting? Was he looking? Was he scanning the horizon, waiting for that moment, hoping that one day in the distance he sees that all-too-familiar gate, that gate that only a father knows. He sees the, his son walking, and he knows immediately who's coming down his road. We don't know if the father was waiting or looking, but he happens to see his son that day. And moved with compassion, he ran literally he hung on to his neck, and he showered him with kisses. That's the sense of the Greek text there, that he showered. Now, to think of a man of dignity in this culture running out to somebody, especially somebody who had wronged him, is almost unthinkable. Because if he's going to run and he's wearing robes, he's going to have to do what the, uh, the Bible talks about, about girding up your loins. He's going to have to take his robe and fold it up under his belt so he can actually, his legs can be free so he doesn't fall on his face. Then he's going to run. He abandons all sense of dignity because he sees one he loves. And what is he doing? Just like the lost shepherd, he's going after him. He's running, going after him, not waiting for him to just come on up and limp up to the front door. He meets him where he is in his brokenness to accept him and renew him. And I love that the father is driven by love, not what's appropriate in his culture. And so the son launches into his speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, in the middle of his speech now, his father turns around and begins giving commands to his servants. Bring quickly, express command, the best robe, and put it on him, express command. Put a ring on his hand, express command. Shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, express command, and kill it. Then let us eat and celebrate. You know what he doesn't do? The father doesn't wait until the filth of the, fall, uh, the far country is washed off his son. He immediately takes his own noble garments and puts it over the filth. So now the filth of what the son had indulged is no longer seen. All that is seen is, can we call it a robe of restoration? Or, in theological terms, a robe of righteousness over his son. The ring, most likely a signet ring. Why is that important? The signet ring meant that the son bore authority. In other words, he wasn't restored as a servant. He was giving 
given his rightful place as a son. His identity was son, and the father restored him in his full identity. So we think about the robe, we think about the uh, ring, we think about the sandals. Servants in this culture often went barefoot. And so the sandals would mark him out as someone not a servant. So he's got a robe of nobility, a ring of authority, and sandals that mark him out as someone completely different from the servants of the house. He is a son. And what we have here, you can almost see the picture if you, if you think of it, is a father who is lavishing his son with love, who is covering his son with love, who's hugging and kissing and welcoming this one back. The fattened calf to save for the special occasion is killed and prepared. Why? Because Jesus is telling us something about the heart of God here. God's love and joy in the restoration of sinners. Those who, this son of the father, he was a son, and yet he went off to a far country to live like not a son. And when he came to his senses, read repentance, he went back to his father knowing that that is where I can be restored. And the father did in fact restore him. And then the house rejoices and celebrates because this one who was dead is alive. This one who was lost is found. This one who had need, has been filled. And now we get to the conflict of the story. Who was Jesus talking to? Well, remember now, in Luke 15, verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So who is Jesus talking to? Certainly, he's talking to the, the sinners who are around. What's the point of this story? We're about to get it. It really, he's talking to the Pharisees at this point. By these last few verses here, 25 to 32, where he lays into the older son, the older son who was in the field, came and drew near. He heard the music. And remember, he's not pleased. He's not happy. Right here, we're told there are two types of sins that Jesus is dealing with. One is licentiousness. We can't get away from that. The son sought to live in a licentious way, giving himself a free pass. And how did it end? In death but restoration. So we've got the resolution already. We understand what is the remedy to the sin. It's the Father. But it's not just licentiousness that we're looking at here. It's also legalism. What happens when one is not lost in licentiousness, but is lost in legalism? Because you've got two sons here, both, we could call them both in a far country, one literally indulging, one figuratively so separate from the Father because he's so blinded by his own sense of self-righteousness and self-worth, he's forgotten who he really is. So the other brother, think of him as more pharisaical. He hears the parting. He's asking what it means. And they're, of course, telling him with joy, your brother has come. And your father, he's, he's celebrating because he's safe. But then you get it. Verse 28, he was angry, refused to go in. And then you get it again. What do we read? His father came out to him. What do we see when the prodigal is a long way off? The father goes out to him. What do we see when the pharisaical older brother refuses to go in? The father goes out to him. The disposition of the father is the same. They both need to be rescued from something, and the father goes to where they are, not waiting for them to come in. This is the heart of God. 
the father goes out to him. Why? To win him in a sense. He's a son just like the other one is, but to remind him of what that means. This son has it in his mind that my work is a slavery, that my place in this house is to earn, 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 and the father has to say, all that I have is yours. You're always with me. You are my son. It's not as if you have to do, 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 do to make me love you. I love you because you're my son. He's establishing the reality of what it means to be sons and daughters of the father. The older son lived like a slave, though he was a son. And in this sense, there is no resolution to this. This is why I call this just the conflict. Because if you look how it ends, he says, this son of yours who devoured your property with prostitutes, he won't even call the kid his brother, and you kill the fattened calf, you celebrate this guy? Look at what he's been doing. Son, you're always with me, says the father. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this brother of yours... (laughs) was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And we don't really know whatever became of the older son. Now, remember, this is a parable. It's a, it's a fictitious story that Jesus tells to prove a point. And I think that is the point. He's looking at the Pharisees and saying, you don't, you've rejected, in a sense, ultimately, not, not in a sense, you've ultimately rejected your sonship because you're living like a slave. So when we look at this, what was Jesus' point? Well, A, his point is heart, God's heart for sinners. But it's this reality, and what I'm about to say may sound a bit cliche to you, and I'm sorry if it does, but it's absolutely true. God's love through the cross conquers all. This is not a cultural, you know, that, that cultural phrase that means nothing. This is not that, hey, love wins. I can't stand hearing that in culture because love wins insofar as the love of Christ wins at the cross. It wins sinners and the broken and the lost and the hurting, and that's the type of love that we have, and through it we remain victorious over Satan, sin, and death, and the world, then yeah, love does win. But the love of Christ born out in the cross does win, and Jesus here is telling us something about the heart of God. He's telling us that in these moments, that God's love really does win. It really does bring peace and hope and joy and fulfillment and belonging. And did I mention peace? I know that I did because that's the very thing we often search for is peace. Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. That is God's message to us who are in him this morning. We are with him. And all the promises and riches of Christ are ours through the cross, secured at the cross for those who believe and who follow. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this story. I love the beauty and richness of it. I love the simplicity of it. Man had two sons. Both needed finding. One more obviously than the other, and yet both needed to be found. Father, it's so easy for us to live our lives and to think of or live in, the, in comparing ourselves to other people. And, Father, we are all people who need to be rescued in you in one way or another. 
whether this morning we are rescued and we're walking or whether we are sitting here separated from you and we need to be rescued for the first time. We all understand the reality of what it means to need rescue. Help us to live in your love, submitting ourselves to you, loving you, and seeking your love above all things. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.